You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. The new documentary, Pray the Devil, Back to Hell, chronicles the remarkable story of the courageous Liberian women who came together to end a bloody civil war and bring peace to their shattered country. With us today is the film's producer, Abigail Disney, who is also the founder and the president of the Daphne Foundation, a progressive social change foundation that makes grants to grassroots community-based organizations working with low-income communities in New York City. Pray the Devil Back to Hell is now screening at the Lemley Music Hall on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills. Abigail Disney, welcome to film school. Thank you so much. Uh, who is is so excited? (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited. You know why? We heard a a squeal in the background. I couldn't help but hear that. I assume that wasn't you. (laughs) How well, why don't you tell the folks why I'm excited? Oh well, go well. You please, you share well, the good news. Is, is it the? Uh, go go is, ahead, Abigail. I, oh. Well, it's not because of the 80th anniversary of Steamboat Willie. Yeah, no. okay. <laughs> it's because we were shortlisted for the Oscar, which we're very oh about. excellent. Now, for people who yeah. don't know, this is a prime a preliminary list. They narrow it down to the 15, I believe, documentaries, yes, and it's wonderful and wonderful news and uh, deservedly. Wow! Congratulations. Yeah, oh, great thrilled. news. Yeah. My yeah. goodness. Well, that's the end of the interview then. Just, <laughs> well, just, and, and how does it feel? <laughs> uh, that's great. Now, you're not going to say, um, I'm going to Disneyland or no, anything like see. that. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I try to avoid that. Yeah, I'm sure. That's why I said it. It was, it was painfully embarrassing for me. In 2006, you went mm-hmm. to Liberia and, and not connected with making a film or anything. You you went to the country. Can you tell us a little bit about why you were there and, and what you discovered? Well, it's it's you know, it was just that I was invited to go with a group of women who were excited about Ellen Johnson's early presidency and we wanted to see, you know, was there anything we could do in support of her. So really it was just it had nothing to do with making a film and had nothing to do with any of it. But um I just lucked into this story really. It was sort of something a lot of people were talking about, but I had never heard of it. So it was intriguing to me, you know, why had I never heard this and and what exactly happened? So I started snooping around a little bit and by the time I left I was just determined to make this documentary. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, I, b- being kind of a news junkie and, and interested in a lot of this stuff, I remember back in the 90s, late 90s, hearing a lot about Charles Taylor mm. and, the, and uh, about how the, he was recruiting children. Yeah. There, there was a real, uh, the UN, in fact, I believe it was around 97, 98, took up this cause of child soldiers around the mm-hmm. world. And he was yeah. certainly one of the sort of poster I say poster boys yeah, for this. Poster boys. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it is in this film. You can see uh, multiple images of of what eleven, twelve, thirteen year old boys hanging on the backs of trucks with a, yeah. with uh, AK forty sevens and pointing them yeah. at everybody and anybody. It's it's quite a chilling yeah. image when you see this. It sure is. It sure is. It's hard to look at. And and there's a reason why we've seen an upswing in in child soldiers. It's because the Weapons have gotten lighter. The AK actually, you know, it's a Russian weapon that's 50 years old. It's light. It's reliable. It can be fixed with many different kinds of parts. So 
Um, that's one reason we're seeing so many of them. And what, what Charles Taylor and a lot of these other guys will tell you is they're kind of perfect soldiers. Because once you cut them off from their families, they just rely on you for everything. And if you keep them drugged up, you know, they are, they're basically perfect soldiers. They're not really, they don't think they're going to die. Um, and they believe all follow you anywhere yeah now the, the the reports that they were heavily drugged as they they were being yeah. fed obviously they kept them food uh, and they, food and shelter but they were also given yeah. a drug that would essentially give them uh some sense of well-being or a sense that they were impervious well, to... they they tended in liberia i mean it's, it's different in every place and in serbia they used um some child soldiers and they used a lot of um drugs with them in in liberia it was pot to slow them up and 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 cocaine to speed them up so they would, depending on their needs at any given time, they would they would have them on something. Well, let, let's get a little bit into the history here. Uh, for those who uh, who don't know, Liberia is on the western side of Africa. It's sort of at just below right. that little where it uh, where it curves back in towards the right. middle of the in continent. Fact, you know, Monrovia is as close as you can get to the to the Americas in Africa. So right. it's the shortest distance to the Americas. And uh, that's where, in 1827, uh, there were a group of re um, returning slaves from the United States who were funded, actually, some in some cases by slaveholders, slave owners, and in some cases by abolitionists to go back and, and reestablish themselves on the continent. Which they did, and that, and for 160 years, 170 years, uh, I'm sure it was a country that struggled economically, but... Uh, yeah, but yeah. It, well, I, and they set themselves up very dysfunctionally. You know, they were not... From that area, they looked down on the indigenous people. They, they most of them converted to Christianity and um, saw themselves as sort of more superior and more intellectual. So, they established an incredibly horrible system, two-tiered system, and, and, and in some cases enslaved the indigenous people to work on. They built plantation houses. They walked around in bowler hats and had debutante balls for their daughters. It was kind of a surreal situation for 160 years. So it took really some of the worst elements of American society and transplanted them back in, exactly. in Africa. Well, exactly. Now, uh, so th there was a tremendous amount of tribal uh, rivalry here and, and also this sort of upper right. class. Is it, was it predominantly right. a Christian upper class? It was um, predominantly Christian upper class. It's about it's about 60% Christian and about 25% Muslim and then the rest are animists and, and practice traditional beliefs, although most people blend the traditional beliefs with their with their established religions in some way or another. But yeah, most of the upper class were were Christians and, and fairer skinned in many cases and had names like Taylor and Jackson and Jefferson, which they had taken from slave masters or had taken on to sound, you know, more sophisticated. Um, so and then it of course it all blew up. In 1979, there was a coup. The Samuel Doe, who was in the army, climbed into the president's window and, and killed the president, and then they assassinated the whole cabinet on the beach, and that led to about 10 years of tyranny by this you know, horrendous dictator, Samuel Doe, whom we supported. Ronald Reagan was a great supporter of him. And then, and then Taylor came back and started the insurrection and took over most of the countryside, um, fairly quickly. So from the early 90s, he actually run, ran most of Liberia um, and made several assaults on the city of Monrovia, mostly taking civilians out. He was never able to kill that many of those soldiers. And, and in 1996, there was an internationally brokered um, peace agreement which brought an election which brought Taylor to power with 90-plus percent of the vote, mm -hmm. mostly because people were afraid 
that if he lost, he would just go back and start the war over again. So the, the campaign theme was literally, you kill my ma, you kill my pa, now I vote for you. So after that, he, he, it sounds like he ran a very tyrannical uh, sort of kleptocracy yeah. for himself and his cronies. Yeah, he, he, was, he, was, he was, I think, I think he's a sociopath. I mean, I think that's the only explanation for the just absolute lack of conscience. So he pocketed hundreds of millions of dollars. Liberia is an incredibly resource-rich country, so there was timber and there was rubber and there was iron ore and there were diamonds and there was gold. He pocketed everything he could pocket. Uh, he killed anybody who disagreed with him. And that's where these women come in. He said, you know, if my own mother goes out and protests against me, I'll arrest her. Um, and still they went out and did what they did. Well, I want to point out that, uh, by the way, we're speaking with Abigail Disney. She is the producer of a now shortlisted documentary for Academy <laughs> Award, uh, the, the Pray the Devil Back to Hell. And uh, the clips you see of Taylor, he seems like, as you said, this sort of, I assume a psychosis here, because he comes off as very reasonable, very measured, yeah. very very sort yeah. of, uh, you know, uh, le- level-headed in a way. Uh, but, yeah. but then again, you know the crimes that are being perpetrated in, in his exactly. name. So, exactly, so, and sometimes well, by him. Well, even at one point in the film, one of the uh, women says, uh, he'll smile at you one minute and then kill you yeah. the next. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So in, in a, give us a time frame here. So after years and years of civil war and killing and people, mm-hmm. just this murderous uh, regime, uh, what year did the, uh, did the um, I'm, I'm going to butcher her name, Decide she'd have Le- Lema Bowie. Thank, thank, <laughs> Lema Bowie. Thank you. It's 2003, and um, it, for some reason in Liberia, everything bad happens in April. And in April of 2003, the war started closing on the city. The war had been raging all this time, really, um, out in the countryside, and there was just horrendous brutality out in the countryside. Yeah. And so almost well, the this entire was, country... this was coming was from, in, from warlords who had had enough of Taylor. Is that... In, right, exactly. And... Yeah. It took us the longest time to figure out this country because we kind of wrote in there thinking, oh, well, of course, somebody will be the good guy in this scenario. There were no good guys in this scenario. They were all just simply looking to dislodge Kick Taylor so they could pocket the money. There was not a single warlord or reasonable voice in the mix. So basically the people were sort of squeezed in this pincer between Taylor, who was defending his power, and, and the various warlords, including a group called Lurd, who were incredibly well-armed, um, who, were, who were closing in on the city to dislodge him. So, so now you, now, uh, th- one of the things about this film, and uh, Nathan and I talked about this, there's an awful lot of footage of people sort of as it happened. And, yeah. and who, was, who, how, who was responsible for getting that footage? Because it sounds like it was really prior to your... Appear, uh, showing up to, to do this, or am I am I incorrect on my time? Well, I didn't show up till 2006. So the really scary footage of really scary guys with guns and that kind of thing, that was all taken by stringers for the networks and freelance people who, you know, we know that every war attracts a certain amount of crazy crazy guys who who show up with their cameras, uh-huh. hoping hoping to get a good shot. And and they they were really drawn to the child soldiers. So actually, we. We went through lots and lots of archival footage to make this film, and at some point we had to kind of stop watching it because it was really disturbing. Um, and, and, and what we kind of came to the conclusion was that, you know, there was a certain prurience in the way these guys shot this war. You know, there was a certain kind of 
almost sexual attraction to it or fascination with the violence, with the blood, with the gore, with the boys, with their guns and so forth. What we couldn't find was archival footage of the women. That was the hard part, you know, protesting for peace, sitting on the field. We had journalists say to us, you know, oh, yeah, I knew those women were over there, but they were just so pathetic looking. Why would I shoot that? Hmm. Um, so that, I think, is an enormously important part of the story. Where we did get all that footage of women actually doing things was from private sources, individuals who had um, video. In one case, there was a guy who was paid to be the videographer for the presidential palace from 1978, so before Doe takes over, through um, the second year of Ellen's so he was there for coups, he was there for assassinations, he was there for mortar fire as the videographer, and when he was downsized out of his job, he went home with all his masters. That's, that's so incredible. It's yes. unbelievable. He just had yeah. a box of masters. He came to the hotel and said, what do you need? Mm -hmm. and, and just because we, through our informal networks, managed to find this guy, he had that footage of those women sitting there, you know, 2,000 of them confronting Taylor at the presidential palace. And, you know, this is so important because the fact is, if we had left that as just an anecdote told in the voices of the women, I guarantee you it would have been swept aside, it would have been dismissed as an exaggeration, and it would be a nice fairy story, but not anything significant or certainly anything that had any influence. And that's why it was so important to us to scrape and, you know, scramble in every way we could to find the real footage of these women doing what they did. Because we knew they were telling the truth. Yeah. Um, but we also knew that it would get dismissed really readily if we didn't have the visual, the visual proof of it. So, so the real visual history of, of this event went completely unnoticed by the major news sources of the yeah. world. Yeah. yeah. So at the climactic event, when the women take over the peace talks in Ghana, which is such an extraordinary you know, Lema had actually gone to the guys from CNN and BBC and said, something big is going to happen today, don't go away. And mm -hmm. still, they had no footage, and still wow. there was nothing. You know, there, there was footage of, of boys, you know, with guns. There was footage of cameramen setting up the shot and whistling, Liberia is my home in the background. We have that at one point. But there was, there was nothing these women. So, no, so the stuff at the peace conference was by the same gentleman who did the videographer for. No, actually, we that, um, we got it. One of the stringers happened to be a woman, and that happens to be the person who shot some of the some of the singing, the scene of the women singing. Uh -huh. um, and the rest of it was from private individuals and one guy who worked for the NGO um, that that was sponsoring the women, um, also a women's organization, and that was sitting on a wind. Windowsill, half of it was destroyed by rain. You know, we only used as much as we could find. Yeah. Now, did, was there a point in time where you realized that you were, I, I guess I'd say, recontextualizing the history of Liberia? Was there a point where yeah. you realized that this had been ignored and that, that your film yeah. was bringing this message forward? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I knew, I knew, well, I knew because of the work I'd done with women's organizations for a lot of years that women do heroic things and then they get forgotten or they get dismissed as inconsequential. So I, I believed in this, in this recontextualization from the beginning, um, but um, I definitely didn't know if people would buy it with me, you know. Um, but what I wanted to do was sort of reassert the genuine her heroism of what they'd accomplished, you know, and, and, and make sure that it was not brushed away or dismissed. Partly because, you know, they were really effective 
and they deserve to be respected for what they did. But also because it has this enormous quality of, of inspiring other people to act. Yeah. I, just, I just came three weeks ago, was in Khartoum with the film, showing the film for Sudanese women from all over Sudan, Darfur, southern Sudan, northern Sudan. And these women stayed after the screening for two and a half hours and came up with a position statement on the spot, wow. which they're now working to get one million Sudanese women to sign demanding peace in Darfur. Well, so, you know, and, yeah. and women everywhere will tell you it is so difficult to act if you think you're the first one to do it. You know, and the minute you see that someone else did it, it's, it's, it's enormously powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to describe the sort of the means by which they, they organized. Uh, the, there's terrific uh, uh, characters in this uh, in the film that uh, we, we start out with the woman. Who, is it St. Anne's Lutheran Church? Am I got that? Am I... The um, yeah, it was a Lutheran church. Lutheran church, who decides to start to, that she's had enough, and and yeah. we're gonna, and then we get the the, the Muslim woman who was the head, yeah. of, who was actually working for a security force. Uh, yeah, she, she's a police woman. Police woman, and uh, they get together, and while they had not had a history of working together, Christians and Muslims, they decide, really very spontaneously, that this is going to work, and we're going to yeah. make this work, and we see yeah. them beginning to organize. And then what, tell us what they started to wear in, in a way of symbolizing their, their, their uh, solidarity. Well, it was interesting because they went to Esther, which was a, a text they had in common, which was so smart, and, right. they, and they went in sackcloth and ashes, and so, which in Africa means you wear white, which is what you'd wear to a funeral. So they wore, they wore white T-shirts and white headscarves, partly out of solidarity with the refugee women who'd lost so much and people who'd lost lives, but also partly as a class leveler, you know, such... And, and an, an ethnic leveler, you know, it's such a divided society. And what they said was, look, we, have, we share more than not, and we come together as one united force. So, you know, they were constantly trying to divide these women off from each other, um, but the women were just determined not to be divided. And so that's, that was the gesture of wearing white, which was so extraordinary for them. Well, it's, it's a beautiful visual. It's obviously, it really kind of showcased uh, in, in a significant way what they were trying to accomplish. Were, they, were the priests or the imams trying to pull them apart, or were, did they? At, at the beginning, they were. In fact, actually, if you watch very closely in the scene, the first scene when um, Lema, the heroine, is is whipping people up in the church, you'll see that there are three rows of men in yes. the front. Yes. And then behind them, there are all these women going wild, and the men are not happy. Uh, I saw that. <laughs> I actually I actually noticed that. It's funny you should bring that up, yeah. Yeah, every time I see it, it cracks me up. <laughs> but, but, you know, they just, they went and they pressured. You know, it's pressure from the bottom up, which is a whole different kind of pressure. And it's organizing that's lateral, not vertical. It, 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 it's a different kind of way of operating in the body politic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it t- lends itself to the way women's lives tend to be organized around communities and extended relationships. So it, it was very important to, you know, take one of these episodes where, you know, the lateral organizing, the pressure from the bottom up, that to take one of those episodes and really lay out how it works yeah. and show that it can be really incredibly effective. Mm-hmm. There's a Liz Estrada moment in the film, too. There's a, yes, a sex strike <laughs> that goes on. and this, an, I guess you'd call that a lateral movement. That's a, a, a yeah. straight confrontation. That seemed, they, they were just very creative in the way yeah. that they approached this problem in their country. And, and you yeah. really captured that in the interviews. Did, did you spend a lot of time on those interviews? A fair amount of time. The, the, the core interview, of course, was Lema's, uh-huh. um, and she was a six- or seven-hour interview. 
actually, it kind of breaks my heart because she gave us so much in that interview that I wish we could have had in the well, film. It's the DVD. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she added additional material. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, um, the, uh, as, and as they moved forward uh, and they really organized outside, it was at the fish market where the women took up uh, uh, their, they took their protest. Uh, and, yeah. and, you sh- and there's footage of the motorcade of President Charles Taylor driving okay. by. It looks like, I mean, come rain or come shine, these women were out there. Yeah, and at any point, exactly did, right. was there any, did anyone stop? Did the detail stop, pull out their guns and threaten to, to shoot these women during this course of the You scene? know, it's, it's not in the film, but in one of the interviews, we were told that um, at, there was one day when Taylor sent the boys in their pickup trucks out, and the pickup truck <laughs> circled the women three or four times with sticks in hand in a kind of menacing way, and then they left, and that was the only time they were ever physically threatened. Amazing. Um, you know, it was, it was so many mothers, really, and even a sociopath like Charles Taylor knew that that was a line he couldn't cross. Mm-hmm. Now, now, when, when, uh, when the speech... Uh, so sorry. When uh, Lema, Lema, gave, Lema. The, Lema gave the speech uh, to, uh, and to President Charles... And asking for for help, the woman who was at his side was the president of the Senate. Am I? Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, was there a relationship there between her and, T- and Taylor, or was that was that? Well, it's it's interesting because in, you know in any in any country, this is one of the reasons why you can't say that you know just women automatically make everything better because that's ridiculous. Then you wind up you know with Sarah Palin. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but you know there's there's always you know, even in the most um, difficult country for women's status, there's always a group of extremely privileged, educated women who've made their way into the center of power, either because they married their way in there or they were related or or in one way or another. But, you know, they leave so much of themselves at the door in order to go in and be part of that network yeah. that they often don't really count, you know, as women. But this woman, Grace Minor, the head, the, the head of the Senate, was actually secretly funneling money to the women on the field, the whole that's why she says being in line with our cause. Apparently, Lamech told me that afterwards, Grace was really angry at her for saying that because uh, she worried that Taylor was going to suspect her of colluding with them. Okay, for um, she was secretly cooperating all along. Well, that's an interesting story. That wow, yeah. well, that's re- that's re- <laughs> well. Th- this just this film, um, it is it just there. There's a, a lot of information in it. Uh, yeah. And I think the uh, not only with the images, but just what these women talk about. But it moves, moves very smoothly. It's, yeah, not, yeah. It's, not, yeah. it's, not, it's not too much Thank information you. by by any means. You did a great job of editing, especially Thank you. and and even on the um, archival footage you have. Yeah. I know you're dealing with a lot of sources there, but everything just yeah. moves very smoothly, and you and you get a great sense of history about what's going on. And, well, we had a great great editor and a, and a director with a great deal of discipline. I'll tell you because if it had been me, it Making all the decisions, it would start with dinosaurs roaming in. <laughs> the four-hour epic uh, would have been would have been your take on this. Well, it, it's uh, well, it's wonderful film. Uh, that pray the devil back to hell and uh, Thanks uh, so and much. congratulate uh, Jenny for us and and yourself as well. Congratulations! It's a shortlisted documentary for a consideration yeah. for Academy Award. And 
Go ahead. Can I add that it's our last week at the level? So please get out there and see it. I, I keep okay. telling people if this film, if films like this don't succeed, then we're just stuck with James Bond until the end of time. You just said uh, we sort of broke last up the week last week at the Lemley, Lemley theaters. Uh, it is a it is a, a powerful uh, film about very powerful women taking their own fate and the fate of their country into their own hands. And uh, want to thank you so much, Abigail Disney, for being here on Film School today. Okay, thanks, guys. Bye. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.